to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians, that's in the New Testament, it's on page 976 in the red Bibles around you. As we began last week in this new series looking at this book that Paul wrote in the first century to the Christians gathered in the city of Ephesus as well as other areas around that city. Uh, We looked at the first couple of verses last week, and we come now really to uh, one of the, I would say, one of the hallmarks of this letter uh, with verses 3 all the way down through verse 14 is just one sentence that Paul writes in the Greek. Uh, He uh, just bursts into almost a song of praise to God and who He is. We're actually going to take several Sundays to work our way through this one sentence in the Greek, verses 3 through 14. Today we're just going to be looking at the first couple of verses, verses 3 through 6. So I'd invite you to look there as I read to you Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's pray together. Our great God and King, our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the Apostle Paul. We are thankful that you brought him to a place to write this incredible, wonderful sentence. These words that we treasure deeply help us to do that today. Help us to understand them more significantly and help us. Father, to believe them, and as a result, to be changed through the work of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he doth, and follow where he guideth. He is my God. Though dark my road, he holds me that I shall not fall. Wherefore, to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content what he hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away and patiently I wait his day. Whatever my God ordains is right, though now this cup in drinking may bitter seem to my faint heart. I take it all unshrinking. My God is true. Each morn anew, sweet comfort yet shall fill my heart, and pain and sorrow shall depart. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken, though sorrow Need or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him 
I leave it all. Those words were written by Samuel Rodegast. He's a 17th century hymn writer and teacher and pastor. But many don't know that those words of that hymn were written by Rodegast to a very special friend of his, Severus Gastorius. He wrote those words to his friend as he was deathly sick. We're not sure exactly what Gastorius was dealing with, but he seemed to be almost on his deathbed. And Rodegast wrote these words to his friend as a way of encouraging him, indeed as a way of exhorting him that no matter what the circumstances are in his life, to put his hope and his trust in his Father in heaven who is faithful and who is good and who is gracious. It so moved his friend, Gastorius, that Gastorius then wrote the music to the hymn that Rodegast had penned the words for. Some hymnologists actually look at that hymn, Where My God Ordains Is Right, and see it as an antiphonal hymn, a hymn that both the words and the music were written in such a way as they could easily be said back and forth between two parties, singing a phrase and then the other party responding to that phrase as if Rodegast and Gastorius would sit across from each other in the difficulties of life and remind each other of these gospel, biblical truths. You can actually see that and feel it in the hymn, in the midst of the storms of life, in the midst of the difficult circumstances that we endure, even when things are going well in our lives, we are to remember that despite our, our circumstances, we are not forsaken, that the Creator God of the universe is my Father in heaven who loves me and cares for me, and so I will not despair. I will not be controlled by my circumstances. Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians living, uh, the Christians living in the city of Ephesus, who were, as we talked about last week, living in difficult circumstances. And Paul was writing to encourage them. And after he has these customary introductory greetings that we looked at last week in verses 1 and 2, Paul calls them to praise the Lord, to bless the Lord. You might even think of these verses as a Trinitarian hymn that Paul writes to remind these brothers and sisters in Christ going through difficulties and challenges, whether from within or from without. Rather than the circumstances of life, he tells them, rather than those circumstances of life dictating how you feel about your Heavenly Father, Trust and praise the Lord. And notice he tells them why they are to do it at the end of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. How do we handle difficult circumstances in our lives? Do they determine and direct us? Or are we directed and driven by the truth of God's word? That God is our Father who loves us 
and never leaves us nor forsakes us. Some of us in this room have horrific pasts and have overwhelming presence and have unclear and dark futures. And the question for us this morning is, what does that cause us to do in the midst of those circumstances? Do we become angry? How could God do this? How could God allow this to happen? Do we become anxious? Has God left me? Or do we become people who praise and trust and faithfully obey our Heavenly Father even in the midst of those difficulties? And even when our circumstances are going well, does that make us to be arrogant and unappreciative? Or are we moved in those moments to recognize that our Father in Heaven is good? What Paul says to the Ephesians and what he says to us this morning is that as God's people, as his beloved sons and daughters, we must praise our Father in heaven because he has blessed us in Christ. And how has he done that? How has he blessed us in Christ? He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has blessed us by making us what we were designed and created to be. And he has blessed us by lavishing his grace on us. Let's look at those three things this morning. First of all, God has blessed us in Christ by blessing us with Every spiritual blessing. That's what he says at the end of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice, these are spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places. Paul's not saying that we are guaranteed to have the Lord's blessing of us on us with wealth, with health, with ease and comfort in life, with success, with good marriages and good family relationships. Those are not the blessings that Paul is referring to here. He is talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That is, all that Christ has accomplished through His life and death and resurrection. If you were here last week, you remember that we talked about that if you are a Christian here this morning, you have been united to Jesus Christ. You have been connected to Him such that all that He accomplished in redemption is now yours in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds the Roman Christians of this in Romans chapter 6 where he says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Do you see the implication of what Paul is saying? If you are a Christian here this morning, you have been united to Jesus in His death. And what Jesus accomplished through his death, the forgiveness of sins, the payment of penalty, is now yours because you are united to Christ in his death. And if you are here as a Christian this morning, you have been united to Jesus and his resurrection. And as Jesus rose from the grave and conquered the power of sin and the reality of death, 
then because you are united to Christ, you too are no longer imprisoned by sin. And death is just temporary. Notice Paul says we get every spiritual blessing. He even gives us a couple of them here in the verses that we're looking at today, such as that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, He says. He says at the beginning of verse 5, in love, He predestined us before time began, before we existed, before we had the opportunity of doing anything worthy or good or anything unworthy or bad. God chose us. That means that God's choice of His people is not based on their good works, their efforts, their goodness, or their success. What is God's choice based on then? Paul tells us at the end of verse 4, it was in love that He predestined us. It's the same thing that he's going to say in chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Reminds us that God's choice is not some arbitrary or dispassionate, cold casting of lots. It is love. We should not have in our minds a picture of a Savior who had to come to this earth and die and somehow convince an angry, old, cold father that he should love those for whom Jesus had died. God is telling us that as a father, he has loved us from before the foundation of the world. And because of sin, Jesus came and purchased our redemption securing us as his children. After all, that is what he says there as he goes on in verse 5, that he predestined us for what? For the adoption as sons. That means that we get access to our Father. It's what the Galatians 4 passage that we read earlier in our service reminds us. That now we have the privilege, along with our Savior, of approaching our Heavenly Father and crying out to Him, Abba, Father. The most intimate and tender of names. It means not only that we have access to our Father, but we have an inheritance. Notice he says that we have adoption as sons. Now don't think that Paul's just being sexist here. You have to remember that in the ancient culture, it was only the sons that got the inheritance. And so what he's saying for us, every single one of us, man and woman and child in Christ, you have the inheritance. You are adopted into God's family. And because we have access to our Father and because we have an inheritance that has been secured by nothing less than Christ's death on the cross, that means that we have security That we have been adopted and so our legal status has been changed from slave to son and daughter. From foreigner to one who is known and loved. One of both Pastor Gordy and my professors in seminary, Dr. Robert Peterson, wrote a book back in 2001 about this idea of adoption. This biblical idea of adoption. And in the book, he tells the story about a young lady named Lisa who lived a life 
as growing up in a Christian home, constantly trying to be good enough, constantly trying to to measure up to what she thought God needed from her in order for God to treat her well. And she recounts about how this life of constantly trying to earn God's love and acceptance caused her to have great despair because she knew deep down that it was impossible. She was constantly living not only in despair but fear because she was always afraid that she would do something wrong and then God would disown her. But then someone helped her to begin studying this idea of the adoption of God, of His children. And this is what she says. The study of adoption clarified the confusion I once felt. Adoption is a legal procedure which secures a child's identity into a new family. We don't have to worry day to day whether or not we are good enough to be part of the family. In His infinite kindness, God made us a permanent part of His family. Nothing can undo the legal procedure that binds me to Christ. He died to redeem me. He signed the adoption papers, so to speak, with His own blood. Nothing can cancel the work He did for me. I am free from the fear of falling away. Hallelujah. God can be trusted. God can be loved. God can be praised. Because He has truly blessed us. How? Because He has lovingly and graciously and sovereignly chosen us before the foundation of the world and adopted us once and for all into His family. Paul says also that God's blessed us in Christ by making us what we were designed to be. He says at the end of verse 4, even he, he chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. That word blameless there means, it's the word that's connected to the idea of an animal without blemish, without defect being used in the temple sacrifices. It's the idea of a spotless lamb. The reference to Jesus Himself as the ultimate spotless lamb, blameless. And do you see what Paul's saying? That because of the work of our Father in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ, in Christ, now we are blameless. We are spotless and without defect. Our Father in heaven looks at us as His blameless, faultless, without defect sons and daughters. When we are filled with shame and guilt in this life, we are reminded that our position with our Father doesn't change. In Christ, we are blameless. He says also that we are holy. Not simply blameless, but holy. Not only has our blame and our guilt and our shame been removed from our Father because of Jesus' work, we are also by God declared to be holy. That means that when we become Christians, we don't just get a clean record that we then have the opportunity of messing up again, but that in Christ, God takes our record and fills it with Christ's righteousness in permanent, indelible ink, such that we are now declared holy, or as we looked at last week at the beginning of the very book where he refers to them as saints. Paul spells this out in even more detail in Romans chapter 5, verses 17 and following. He says, If 
Because of one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Paul is talking about here is what theologians often refer to as both the definitive and the progressive nature of our holiness, of our sanctification. And all that that simply means is that the Christian is both declared holy and blameless before the Father and given the status of righteous, of saint, of holy now. And the promise is ours that the Christian will be made more and more holy, changing and transforming by the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, God can be trusted. He can be loved and He can be praised and He can be blessed by us Because He has made us what He designed us to be, holy and blameless. There's one other aspect of this here in these verses today. God has blessed us in Christ by lavishing His grace on us. He says here at the end of verse 5 that all of this is according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved And as we come in a couple of weeks to verses 7 and 8, we'll see at the end of verse 7, all of this is according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in Christ. What does Paul say that shows us that this is the case? Because he tells us at the end of verse 5 that all of this is done by the purpose of His will. Literally in the Greek that says, according to the good pleasure Of His will. If you have the NAS translation in front of you, it says, according to the kind intention of His will. If you have the NIV in front of you, it says, in accordance with His pleasure and His will. Paul says, He does all of this because of the good pleasure of His will. It's not based on anything that we do or anything that we accomplish. It is purely based on His gracious love for His people. And the consequence of that is that if you are here this morning in Christ, then you are the pleasure of God. You are the delight of God. You are the satisfaction of God. Or to put it another way, he says, you are His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That could also be translated, the glorious grace which has made us accepted. God has lavished His grace on us. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at that word in more detail, the word lavish. But let me just tell you this morning that it means a superabundance, an overabundance, an excessive amount. More than is needed. More than could ever be spent or used up. 
think of how incredibly profound this idea is. If God has blessed us in Christ, chosen us before the foundation of the world, adopted us and sealed our adoption with the blood of his own son. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places places, and loves us in his beloved. Then there is nothing that we could do to cause God to stop loving us. There's nothing that we could do to cause God to love us more than he actually does at this very moment because his love has been secured for us from before the foundation of the world. And it's perfect. No matter what the circumstances of life make us feel like. A few years ago, I told you the story of a friend of mine who took two of his sons to the St. Louis Zoo. Uh, it was a long time ago. His sons were very small. They were young. But they had been to the zoo before and they knew, I don't know if it's still one of the attractions at the St. Louis Zoo. I haven't been there for quite a while. But back when his family would go and he took his boys there, one of their favorite attractions was the Big Cat Country. It's where the lions and the tigers hung out. And as they came close to that exhibit, the sons broke away from their father's hands and ran ahead up to the exhibit. They went to the place where they could see the lions behind the fence, but they were small, they were eager, and they found the smallest of gaps next to the fence. And before the father could do or say anything, they had squeezed into that hole and they were standing on a ledge over the lions on the other side of the fence. The father was horrified. He was shocked. Imminent danger for his children. But even in the midst of that shock, he had enough sense about him to know that he shouldn't yell or scream at them because they might get scared and fall into the pit. So he got down on his knees and he opened his arms and he called out to his sons by name, Jordan, Colin, come give your dad a hug. The boys looked at their father and they saw a very familiar posture. And at that moment, in that circumstance, they turned and they looked at their father. And their love for their father was greater than their excitement for the lions. They squeezed back through the fence, ran to their father and got a loving embrace. If you're here this morning as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your heavenly father calls you by name. Sandy, you are mine. Luke, you are mine. Ralph, you are mine. Carl, you are mine. Randy, you are mine. Jenny, you are mine. Kent, you are mine. I am your father. You are my beloved son and daughter. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like Colin and Jordan, in the difficult circumstances of life and in the good circumstances of life, the call of our Father must be the most important thing that grips our imaginations such that no matter what is going on in our lives, we look to Him and we run into His embrace. And the more that we do that, the more that we will start to live lives with a profound and humble praise and gratitude for our Heavenly Father. That we're humble. That this wonderful doctrine that is given to us in these verses would not drive us to be arrogant and prideful and argumentative, but it would drive us to be humble servants of our Father. That we would be filled with trust and praise and thanksgiving even when the circumstances of our life are hard. That we would trust our Father in heaven more than we allow the circumstances of our life to cause us to doubt and disobey. We will also be more and more people who live without being destroyed by shame and guilt that our sin brings into our lives. Will we still experience conviction of our sin? We desire that. If we are in Christ, we want the Holy Spirit to bring us to conviction of our sin. We may even feel bad about it and even feel shame and guilt. But shame and guilt in this life can no longer destroy us and control us. Why not? Because I am in Christ, I have been united to Christ in His death and His resurrection. I have been declared holy and blameless before my Father in heaven. And my status as an adopted child will never change or waver. Are there consequences for my sin? Absolutely. Are there sometimes when I might experience the discipline of my Heavenly Father? You can count on it. He tells us that that's how we know that He is a faithful and loving Heavenly Father. Will I feel sorrow for my sin? Yes. But the more that we see our sin and sorrow for it and repent and turn away from it and ask for the Lord's forgiveness, we will believe the promise of the gospel of grace and not be destroyed by shame and guilt. And lastly, the more that we start to understand our Father in these ways, we'll live with a deep sense of security and assurance. If God has known and loved and chosen me from before time began, then I can rest knowing that Philippians 1.6 is true. He who began a good work is going to bring it to completion. Even when the circumstances of my life are difficult or something that I can't even understand, even in those moments when I am caused to be tempted to despair, we remember, whatever my God ordains is right. He loves me. He will complete His work in me and will never leave me nor forsake me. So I will go out and live like who I am. Let's pray together. Our Father, it is often hard for us to remember all that that means. You being our Father. And I know it's particularly difficult for those in our midst who've had bad examples of earthly fathers. Help us, Father, to see who you are as our true Father. And help us to put our trust and hope in that. Fill us. 
fill us with hope and fill us with joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after he had blessed it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine till that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If you were here last week during the second service, you know that I threw everybody a little bit of a curveball during the Lord's Supper last week. As we normally do, we got to the uh, first uh, hymn uh, during the uh, passing out of the bread. And uh, it was a long morning last week, getting back into the two-service schedule. Uh, two services, two sermons, we had uh, multiple baptisms, we had recognition of new members, we had the uh, beginning of the Sunday school, and by the time I was at the end of the second service, I was just toast, and so was my brain. And so I have no idea to this day why I did this, but as, we, uh, as the bread went out and we began singing the hymn, I told everybody to stand up. And uh, everybody kind of laughed, thought maybe I was joking, and kind of looked at me. A couple people kind of started to stand up and looked at me confusingly. And I saw the confusions on their faces. And for whatever reason, I reaffirmed what I said and doubled down on it. I said, no, please stand. <laughs> so then those who were serving had to go back and figure out how they were going to do this with people holding hymnals and bread and standing and... And then as those who were serving came back down to the front, normally they sit here in the front, but we had the congregation standing. So a couple of them sat and a couple of them stood and it was a fiasco. Now, as funny as that is, I I do want to make a point about that this morning. And it is actually meaningful that you sit when we sing a hymn and as the bread is coming out to us. What is that representing? It's representing that we do nothing as we come to this table. We receive. We receive what Christ has done for us by giving His body and His blood for us. It's actually meaningful for us to sit and we are in a sense making a statement by sitting and saying, I come with open hands, I am needy, I am a sinner, I am broken. I need the reminder of my Heavenly Father who has worked salvation for me. And that's what this meal points us to, the the Lord's body and His blood that have been given for us to secure our redemption, to secure our adoption, to secure the fatherhood of God over us. So if you're here this morning, first of all, stay seated, no matter what I tell you. But second of all, If you're here in Christ this morning, then as these elements come around, remember. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember how much your Heavenly Father loves you and all that He has demonstrated in that through the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And also remember the promises that through the work of the Spirit, God will use this very common thing that we're doing to strengthen us so that we can go out and actually believe that we are the children of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we would invite you to let the elements pass you by. There's some prayers at the back of the bulletin that you could use for this time during the service. So let's pause and let's thank Him for giving us the Lord's Supper. Our Heavenly Father, we do come before You and we thank You that not only do You give us Your Word and tell us 
and remind us over and over and over again about who you are and who we are in you. You also give us this means of grace to point us to Christ once again. And so, Father, we give you thanks for that. We praise you. We bless you because of the way that you have given us this means of grace. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be at work using this very common everyday thing that we do in eating and drinking spiritually strengthen us as we eat in faith, believing these great gospel truths that you have reminded us of this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.